Built Not Born, episode 52. I'm Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is John Stoy. John Stoy is the founder of Verbatim Financial. John may be the only financial advisor who's ever managed over $3 billion and ran a sushi kitchen. John spent decades on Wall Street. He has traded and designed some of the most complex bonds ever seen. He then managed massive portfolios for large institutions like hedge funds. In our interview today, John shares his story, how he shifted his mindset from making millions of dollars on Wall Street to wanting to help the average American family succeed with money. John and I discuss the psychology of money. Why is money so emotional? We talk about simple tactics that the average person can use to succeed in their personal finances and and why it's never too late to get your personal finance game in order. I was so excited that John could join us on the show today. John was in the first group of people in the country to understand that we were in a financial crisis back in 2007. John discusses how that happened and how the average American can succeed with money. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with John Stoy, ex-Wall Street hedge fund manager and founder of Verbatim Financial. And remember, life is built, not born. John Stoy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on for sure. Excited to have you. John, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? So I am a financial advisor and a lot of people are financial advisors. They get into the business for any number of reasons, uh, usually because they don't know what to do. Lots of times because of they started selling insurance maybe out of college. I came into it a little different direction than most. And I feel like that gives me a bit of uh, a leg up on a lot of financial advisors because I came into the industry basically the opposite direction. I started out on Wall Street working for big banks and I ended up managing quite a bit of money for big companies. And then there was a financial crisis. And then I started a food business uh, and I sold it. And after selling it, I was a stay-at-home dad for a while. And I wanted to, after my son got uh, into kindergarten, I wanted to get back into business. And I just wanted to do something that I knew that I could make a difference in. And since I knew finance, that was the way I wanted to go. And I knew all the ins and outs of basically the underbelly of the financial services industry. And so I wanted to get back into Wall Street, if you want to call it that. But mainly, I wanted to do it the right way, which unfortunately is not the way it's done most of the time. What I'd like to do, I'd like to get into some financial basics that every family in America that's listening to this can maybe help clean up their financial game. The difference between a financial advisor and a fiduciary, your time on Wall Street, what it was like going from Wall Street to stay-at-home dad, that had to be a huge transition. You're managing billions of dollars, then going home to changing diapers. That definitely has to be a big (laughs) career change. But before we do, I want to go back all the way to the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in New Jersey in a small town named Garwood. We were 
about a half an hour outside of New York City. And the funny thing is I grew up there in the 70s and 80s. And even though it was a town in New Jersey, which is as being from the Philly area, all suburbs are smashed. It feels like one massive town. You don't know when one town ends and the other, other one starts. But it was really Americana. It was almost uh, like like a town lost in time. Something out of the American Graffiti movie or something like that. We, you know, we had the Little League team and everybody knew each other and the cops smiled at, at you and waved to the, to the kids. It was it was something else. So I, I, I love growing up there in New Jersey. Looking back, what's the most powerful memory of your childhood? I'm going to say it's only now that I'm older do I realize how powerful it was to have been so lucky and hit the lottery to have had my dad there and my mom both together on a daily basis. And I had no idea when you're a kid, why would you, how would you know? I had no idea the sacrifices my dad made in his career to be there for me. And so that's the memory that sticks with me. It's not like a child memory, but it's what I think about when I think about those days now that I'm 50. Looking back, your perspective changes. What you thought was minor turns to be major, and what you thought was major sometimes turns to be minor. It's amazing looking back. Last question about that time pain. Who was your biggest influence when you were a kid? My biggest influence when I was a kid was like one of my scout masters. I was in the Boy Scouts, and and one of my scout masters is a funny guy. It didn't matter whether we were going camping or canoeing. He was always looking to teach the kids a lesson. And one of the things that I still remember to this day, and I'll say it, and it means nothing to, of course, my son, but somebody would complain about the tents weren't right. It was muddy. It was too hot. And he would always look at us and he'd say, hey, this ain't the Marriott. I always remember that to this day. He basically taught us to, to just deal with whatever was coming at us at that moment. And it didn't matter what our expectation was, whether we thought it was going to be better or heck, maybe if we thought it was going to be worse, you're going to deal with what you're experiencing at the time and make the best of it. Take what you experience and make the best of it. There's some great life advice right there. So moving on, someone asked the 18-year-old version of John's story, what do you want to be when you grew up? What would he say? I think... When I was 18, I hadn't the slightest idea what I wanted to be when I was going to grow up. I, I thought maybe I would do something with computers. That was about as close as you could have gotten me. I was a real computer geek uh, growing up, and my parents sent me to the local junior college, had night classes for programming. And I don't know that they thought that there was going to be a, a 10 or 12-year-old kid going to the local junior college night programming class, but they didn't, apparently they didn't put down a, a minimum age. And so my parents signed me up and I showed up. <laughs> and so I, I started doing that from pretty, pretty early on. And so I just kept up with it. And, but what with computers, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So you leave Notre Dame at some point you wind up on wall street. Yeah. And so tell us how that journey started. So people ask me, how did you end up on wall street? And and it's a good question because, like I said, I didn't have any sort of goal. And the answer I give them is, is because I was white. It, it, it's true that I got that job, my first job on Wall Street, because of, of privilege. My, I was home for summer break, and I hadn't gotten a job yet for the summer. I was looking to do maybe construction, which I had done uh, a couple summers before, something like that. And I got a call from one of my friends whose cousin worked 
uh, at a bank on Wall Street. And he said, hey, do you have a job yet for the summer? So he said, can you be in the city in an hour? I said, sure. And that's literally how I got my first job. I, I don't think I didn't have a suit. I had a tie. I don't even think I had a sport coat. I put a tie on and, and as nice of a pair of pants as I could find, I got on the train and went into the city. And I guess they were just desperate for, for somebody. <laughs> and I could start the very next day. And that's how I ended up on Wall Street. So walk us through, how did you wind up managing billions of dollars for people? How, walk us through that journey. So all of a sudden you show up, no sport jacket, no tie, you get a job because you said you're privileged. <laughs> so walk us through that journey. How, what's the next step there? And so that's the funny thing is, right? Things just happen to you if you let them. And that's what happened to me. Now, I did a good job. So I, I'm a hard worker. I'm willing to put in the hours. I don't complain. I, at least I didn't back then. Maybe I complain a little more, more now. And so I just started nose to the grindstone. And I got that job that I probably was unqualified for working on a, on a mortgage bond trading desk and worked there for a few years, saw that they were promoting people who had MBAs. So I decided, geez, if, they're, if that's who they're promoting, I better get an MBA. So I went to business school at the University of North Carolina and got my MBA, graduated because I had some experience on Wall Street. I got a job at a consulting company doing what they called structured finance consulting, which is basically auditing a very complex bond creations. They, they did these big deals that you would sell, slice and dice up all sorts of securities. And then it's a natural progression that I went from there to banking those deals, working as an investment banker. And then as the ins and outs of how these transactions and, and securities are created, something that then you can manage. Uh, and so then I got a job managing portfolios of those same bonds that I used to create. So it was just a, I feel like it was just a snowball rolling downhill, but I know that each, at any of those points, it could have gone a different direction, but I was really lucky and was able to get into a position where I was probably one of a couple hundred people in the entire country that knew exactly what was going on at the beginning of the financial crisis in, in 2007, eight. Let's pause there for a second, the uh, financial crisis of 2007. Yeah. So from a layman's perspective, that's me. So basically <laughs> at the time, the no-doc mortgages, people getting mortgages that shouldn't be getting, not a mortgage, but maybe the size of mortgage they're getting, mm -hmm. they would sell these big mortgages to people that really weren't qualified with no documentation. They'd have all these people buy one to be homeowners and then they would take all these hundreds mm -hmm. or thousands of mortgages, bundle them together, then sell them as investments. And then eventually they would stop paying their mortgage mm -hmm. and then the banks would invest in these and then these investments would fail, right? Something like that, roughly? How wrong that, Yes, you honestly, you have you pretty, pretty much nutshelled it. You don't even need me to explain that. That's, 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 the Michael that's Lewis, exactly what happened. Uh, and that the was one the book I read, the Michael Lewis Moneyball. That's basically my takeaway from that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and listen, and that's all you needed to know. But that was my business. That was those. That's exactly what we did as a banker. We banked and we lent money to the companies that made those loans. And then, as an investor, we invested in securities that were based upon all those mortgage loans, but also car loans and credit card loans and things like that. And anything that was a loan to consumers is what I worked with. 
So being on the inside, you said you're one of the few hundred people initially that saw this coming. What did you see? What's the first time you're like, whoa, this might not be a good idea? So we, when I say we, my friends and our group left the bank we were working for, SunTrust here in Atlanta, and we own money management company. And we were going to issue and manage CDOs, which again, I feel like we're going back in time and we're in the time machine because of people don't probably care much about CDOs any longer. But but that was basically the, the main instrument that that brought everything down 10, 12 years ago. What is um, a CDO? And I, what is a CDO? When it really... Okay. So a CDO, I apologize. So a CDO is, a, is, is what they call a collateralized debt obligation. You can't go more generic of a name than that. But basically, it just meant that you had some form of debt could be mortgage debt, could be credit card debt, uh, some form of debt that you pooled all the payments together from all the thousands of people who are making their monthly payments or not making them in that in the case eventually, and you made an investment based upon those payments. And so that's your Michael Lewis kind of idea there. And it really hit us when we couldn't find any investments to buy any bonds to buy to make this CDO that we were happy buying. We did due diligence. So we went out and visited underwriters, people make lenders making these loans. And we saw that they were making loans that didn't make any sense. What you were saying, loans to people who didn't have any income or couldn't document their ability to pay, things like that. And so once we saw that, and we kept searching and searching, well, surely the next deal will be better. We can buy that. And we couldn't buy anything. Because of that, we our our little company went out of business in seven months. But that was then really then when everything was hitting the fan, when Bear Stearns was went failed and went to J was sold to JP Morgan and blah blah blah. So it was just it was just basically just a mess. Thanks for walking through that. That was a fascinating time. I remember there was a presidential election was going on there. I think Obama was going up against John McCain. I remember they stopped the campaigns for a little bit. I think I said the book was Moneyball. The Michael Lewis book was too big to fail. So you move on from that. (laughs) How do you start verbatim financial? So that's right. That's the most important part for me. So what happened was I got out of our business the money management business failed. I actually started a hedge fund that it made a lot of sense. And then when they bailed the banks out, when uh, it was Obama who bailed the banks out the last time, the banks that we were going to be investing with didn't need our money anymore because taxpayer money is a lot cheaper than hedge fund money. And so I just got tired of it all. And that's what made me just say, I want to do something completely different. And I started a food company with a friend of mine. We, we started a sushi business where we delivered freshly made sushi to, to to corporate clients and things like that. And I did that for about four and a half years. It was a fantastic experience. And I would say the thing, it was very formative in why I run verbatim the way I do, because my mindset shifted. I went from this Wall Street mindset of how can I make the most money possible? And that's really all I was focused on. How could I make the most money possible? Mm-hmm. How can I make my clients feel really good and leave happy every day. Because I learned that from people in the food industry, working with the general manager that I hired who had been in food for 30 years, and all the chefs that I met who ran cafeterias and caterers. The food industry is is really cool and fascinating to me because 
If you are in the business and you stay in the business, and that's important, right? Because a lot of people go into food because of they just need a job and, and it's easy in theory to get those jobs. But if you stick with it, it's because you really, what happens when people actually eat the food that you give them and you want them to feel satisfied and, and happy going home. And so that was just a mindset shift for me. And I probably would still be doing that business right now if it weren't for the fact that my wife and I, we had our first child and she's a, a physician and she just has a crazy schedule going into the operating room all hours of the day and night. And we used to make our sushi overnight. So it would be as fresh as possible when it was delivered in the morning. And so I basically worked the night shift. And the second or third time that she was on call and we had a three or four month old across the hallway, and I got a call from the store that said, hey, boss, we ran out of avocados. And I would have to get out of bed and go to the all-night avocado store, which does exist, by the way. <laughs> and it was just impossible. So luckily, I was able to sell that company, be that stay-at-home dad for a while. And like I said, take that mindset shift that I got from being in food and, and apply it to, to finance and what I could do for folks in the financial advisory business. Before we move on, you, were, you went from Wall Street to basically entrepreneur, small business owner, to stay-at-home dad. What's the life lesson you learned from the entrepreneur of the sushi business? There was like a life lesson, leadership lesson you could tease out. How would you summarize that in a sentence or two? When you are in a big institution, any sort of corporate, you have no idea how much help you're getting from all the other departments. We used to, I, I, I used to say it a lot. I used to say that, that you know, HR is one of the departments that gets made fun of constantly in business. And when I had the sushi company, all I wished for was a good HR department because mm -hmm. hiring is difficult, dealing with anything around employees, relationships, benefits, you name it. All the stuff that HR does that you just write off, that's impossible to deal with as an entrepreneur when you're trying to focus on bringing in revenue and, and keeping the lights on. There's always somebody supporting you. And that's what I learned is that there's no one supporting you when you're an entrepreneur. You're just jumping out of that plane and, and hoping the parachute works when you pull it. You're doing everything. The stay-at-home dad period of your life. What's the takeaway there? How long were you a stay-at-home dad? And what's if you could tease a life lesson out of that in a sentence or two, what would it be? Yeah, I was a stay-at-home dad for about five years. Awesome. Um, the amazing thing is, obviously, it's a gift to spend that much time with your child and children. So, uh, yes, I value that so much. But the most amazing thing to me was how much I missed working at, at a job. And you always thought to yourself, geez, if I, didn't, if I could cover my bills and... I didn't have to work. Wow, that'd be awesome. But no, I, and I wish I had a better way to have controlled my mind and my mental well-being there. But I was probably never as present as I want, as I should have been or wanted to be during those years because I was always feeling some sort of pull, like I should be doing something else. 
And so that's a societal thing, I think. And we're programmed into thinking that that we have to work, that we have to do this, that we if we're not bringing money into the house, then you know, then we're not we're not being successful somehow. It was, but that's that was a. I don't know if I fully learned the lesson. I'm aware of it, <laughs> but it's just one of those things. How did you create Verbatim Financial? Walk us through that. Sure. The path to me becoming a financial advisor and to forming Verbatim was a lot longer than Verbatim has been around. So Verbatim, this is the third year that we've been open, that I've been open as Verbatim. But it wasn't long after, frankly, the financial crisis that I was home for a little while before the sushi business that friends of mine, people in the industry kept calling and saying, you know what you should do? You should become a financial advisor. You're good at managing money. People need that. But I had this idea in my head, which frankly is not wrong, that a lot of the financial advisory business and like I said, financial services is was just not that I didn't have a lot of respect for it. Let's put it that way, because I had plenty of experience with people calling on me to become my financial advisor. And then I I would find out that they uh, either wanted just to sell me some insurance most of the time that, or they wanted my money and they wanted to, to trade it like my money and their client's money was their personal hedge fund. And that just turned me off. And I said, I don't want to be associated with that business. So I put it off for years. I I could have been doing this for for a decade. But but finally, I was talking to a friend of mine who I actually went to high school with, and he was a financial advisor. And I, I was just asking him about his business. How's it going? And he started explaining the way that he did the business, which was for a flat fee and only in his customer's best interest. And I said, hold on, rewind that for a second. Wait. So you're not just out there trying to land the the biggest account that you could possibly get, the guy with five or $10 million and, and constantly looking for the big whale of an account. And he said, no, because if everybody needs help and it doesn't matter how much money you have, basically everybody needs the same type of help. And if you can help them put their financial lives in order to save money, to not give their hard-earned money away either to Wall Street or to the tax man, then you're doing good for them. And so that finally turned me around to say, this is something I could do. I ended up working with him for about six months to learn how he did the business. Once I stopped working with him to form verbatim, that sort of led me to where we are now. When the average person thinks of financial advisor, you hear like certified financial planner and then mm-hmm. the word fiduciary, you hear that. And then the two other things I, I associate is one where they take a percent of everything you do, or they have a loaded fund where they charge you X percent to invest with them, or they just charge you a fee, two different worlds. First, could you describe what the word fiduciary means and why it's important? Sure. So if you have a, a fiduciary relationship with someone, and, and this doesn't have to be just with financial advisors, these are attorney, client, professional relationships should be ideally fiduciary, which would mean that the professional should only be acting in the best interest of the client. So not in the professional's best interest, again, but only the client's best interest. And it comes up a lot 
in the financial services industry because a lot of folks in the industry are not required to be fiduciaries. Salespeople are not required to be fiduciaries. Representatives of broker-dealers are not required to be fiduciaries. And what that allows them to do is to sell the client the product that makes the advisor or the salesman the most money, be it in terms of a commission that they're making on an insurance product they're selling, or there may be internal bonuses that their broker is paying them to sell certain mutual funds or things like that. In the old days, just like you'd see the stock market boiler room kind of thing, there would be special bonuses to sell certain stocks. Those would be non-fiduciary relationships. And so the good news is that people have pretty much caught on to what's bad about commissions-based biases that, that you have from investment quote-unquote advisors. And so that's how people start opening up firms, uh, registered investment advisors like Verbatim, which were uh, fee-only. So you'll hear the term fee-only. And what that means is that the, the people in that firm are not paid by what they sell. They're only paid the fees that their clients sell them. And now most of the fee-only firms are still this is the other term that you mentioned, they're still charging clients based on a percentage of their assets under management, typically around 1%. So if you had a million dollars that your investment advisor is managing for you, you'd be paying them 10,000 bucks a year. And the, the good part about that is, again, no commissions. It's lowering the type of conflicts of interest that you have or that you might have, but it doesn't eliminate it because if you are... There's two things. One, it doesn't eliminate the conflicts of interest because of, for instance, even if your advisor means to be acting as a fiduciary for you. It's really hard to divorce um, yourself from the idea, at least even subconsciously, that say your client wants to buy a house and they're asking, should I buy it in cash? And I'm not saying that this is ever a good idea, but if they really wanted to do that and they had the cash available and all they had to do was sell some of their investments, but the investment advisor would lose the, a percentage of their fee <laughs> equal to the amount that was withdrawn from the accounts to, to, to buy the house. So it's just a, as difficult as, as it is for me to ex even explain that conflict. I think you can get a sense for what makes the conflict. If you start asking these questions of yourself and again, of, your, of, of how you would think of your, the advice that you would give to your client based upon whether it would... Uh, negatively impact the amount of money that you're going to make off of them each mm -hmm. year. It's it makes it difficult. So the way that that I've chosen to do it is by a flat fee, because I provide the same services, the same advice, the same investment management, the same financial planning to every client. So why should one client pay one percent of a million dollars, another client pay one percent of five hundred thousand dollars? And another client maybe pay 1% of $5 million. Those are pretty significantly different numbers for the same service that I'm providing them. Sure, sure. You mentioned questions. If there was someone maybe out there who said, you know what, I've been handling my money myself. I'm looking to maybe get someone maybe a little more professional 
look on my mind, some professional help. Is there like a question or two that maybe you could ask a potential financial advisor that best would ensure that like they would operate in your best self-interest or that you, they'd be that type of fiduciary that person needs? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times you'll read these articles and they'll recommend asking the question, are you a fiduciary? And that's a reasonable question for sure, because of if they say no, obviously that you don't want that. I don't think in my opinion, you want to work with somebody like that with your money. But the first question is, is this, how do you get paid? And then how much will I then pay in total fees and investment costs each year? Because those things are really important. And those questions, they sound very similar, but but they're different. How are you paid? If it's an AUM basis, if I, get, if I charge you a percentage of your assets under management, makes sense in a, in a way, and, it's, and that qualifies as fee only. But then a lot of people will stop right there and they'll think to themselves, okay, I have $500,000 that I'll place with this person and I'll pay them $5,000 a year. It seems fairly reasonable for a professional's services, but then they don't think about how as they add money to their savings, to their investments, as the market grows, and the market is what grows, the financial advisors don't make the market go up and they don't make your investments increase in value, the market and the global and national economies do that, then they don't think that after a few years, if things go well, they are, then they're going to pay $7,000, this fee is just going to go up. It could theoretically go down if the market goes down, but let's be realistic. Our goal is that we're going to save for the long term and the markets are going to, we hope, go up. So you're just, you just know that your fee is going to go up every year. That's a little weird. And then the other part is how much am I going to pay in total fees and investment costs? Because the, we have now the ability to invest in low-cost index funds that charge only fractions of a percent small fractions of a percent each year for professional money managers to keep those index funds on track. And there are also, unfortunately, still tons of ETFs and mutual funds out there that can another percentage point on top of what you are paying to your advisor. So you could end up paying in total fees well over 1% each year. And that makes a big difference going forward. Um, especially in, a, in an environment now where people are saying, and, and I will say that I do not predict the future, we cannot know the future. But if people are thinking that the stock market's going to have a period of lower returns following this period of extraordinarily high returns that we've had, say the market returns 4% and you are paying one point something percent in fees each year, then it's not suddenly, you're not just paying 1%, you're actually paying over a quarter of your return, of what should be your return each year. And so that's the kind of thing that can have a massive impact on your savings. So two of the books that influenced my thinking with personal money management, I read I read a John Bogle book. I forget if it's Enough or E.E. E. John well, Bogle. Well, is, Enough is fantastic. I think it was his I think last that's book probably enough. And then the Burton Malkiel's A Random Walk Down mm -hmm. Wall Street, mm -hmm. right? And it shows how like no one can time the market. 
and just the power of the S&P 500. Just the S&P 500, you line that up against majority of funds, what's it be, 80, 85% of the funds over 10, 15 years? Like where, where's the S&P? If you put the S&P return and you lined up every other mutual fund over, over 15 years, what do you think it beats? Yeah, S&P, they do, they do, they've been doing a study. They call it the SPIVA studies. And they have looked at actively managed mutual funds versus just the index, the S&P usually, uh, shocker. But they look at those funds versus the index. And the vast majority do not beat or even meet the index. And as you go over the course of time in chunks, say over the five-year period, a 10-year period, and then a longer periods, that the number of, of funds that beat or meet the index return just shrinks and shrinks. It's it it is. It's really it's almost impossible to choose one that will because of while it is true that you can find funds here and there that have done it. And there have been successful investors and there have been successful hedge funds that have done these things. But you then have to remember that somehow you, the individual investor, will have to magically select that correct fund. And what I know from being an investor, meeting with investment managers and doing, again, my due diligence that we did pretty intensely for years, it's difficult to get the right answers from them. It's difficult to judge because they're obviously putting their best foot forward. You can't look at past performance necessarily, again, to indicate future performance. You have to look somehow at what their current strategies are, things like that. And it's just... It's really hard. Now, some people love that challenge, and that's great. If you really like the challenge, that's great. You just have to go into it knowing that you're not, the odds are not in your favor. Mm -hmm. Understood. How about some general questions for the average American family? What percent of their income ideally should go into, say, retirement? Let's start there. So, a rule of thumb can be something like 15%. My rule is that I try to work with, when I work with folks, I, I think targeting a certain percentage is, is almost a recipe for, for failure because there are going to be plenty of times where you can't hit it, mm. especially if you've got a family. And you're going to go through periods of your life where saving at all is going to be very difficult. And that can be discouraging. And it can be just it can turn people off from saving. Period. I've seen it. I've read about it. It, it. it really happens, and it's happened to me. When I opened up my business, my food business, all I was doing was pouring money into it, and there was no savings. That you know, I had saved. I'd been through a a, point, a period of life where I was saving more than fifty percent of my income, and thank God I did when I did save that, thank God I could. And I did it because, again, I went through several years where I could save nothing. And in fact, I was borrowing in order to, to keep the business going. And that's going to happen to people, whether they have a second child or a third child, maybe it wasn't really expected. It was a gift, but it wasn't something that they were planning for. You can't start beating yourself up because life threw you a curveball. And so my goal is to help folks to budget such that they understand where their money's going. If 
what they're spending doesn't make any sense whatsoever, then obviously we'll work through that and that might need to be addressed. But if you know that you're going to have a period of time where hitting a certain arbitrary targets is just not possible, I want them to know that's okay too. But it's just, you need to just have the discipline to move back to that sort of safety of savings when it's available instead mm-hmm. of just giving up. Say a new family or an individual comes to you and wants you to help them get their financial game in order. What's your first move? Is it a cash savings? Is it retirement? Where do you usually go first? Say someone's really starting from square one. What's your first move? The first thing we're going to do is find out um, what's possible. Because again, sort of like that savings rate, I can't say saves 15% when they'd be eating cereal every day for every meal and they could still only save 5%. We're, mm-hmm. We have to live in the real world. But making a budget is usually number one. Uh, mm-hmm. Figure out how much money there is left over if there's money left over. And here's the kicker. If there should be money left over, according to the budget, is there in the bank account at the end of the month or mm-hmm. at the end of a three-month period, whatever we've chosen. Because the other thing that happens, we all get busy, our lives our lives just come at us. And we say, okay, I should be able to save $250 a week. Okay, great. Super. And all of a sudden, it's three, four or five months later, and maybe the savings account is only up by $150. Maybe there's an explanation for that. Maybe the air conditioning went out and you got no choice but to call this service guys. Life and, happens. And so sometimes yeah. just life happens at the most inconvenient times. Exactly. But other times people were being a little, call it dishonest with themselves, not with me, but with themselves as to what's possible and what they're really spending their money on. Because you got to be honest with yourself. I'm not here to tell anybody to, to, to not buy the Starbucks. That's not my job. Job is to be honest, is to say, okay, just let's just be honest. Because if we're not working with, with the right numbers, then we're never going to get anywhere. And you got to start yourself sitting down in your own kitchen table with a pad and paper. And frankly, here's the thing. I know that there's plenty of fintech, as they call it. You can find, you can go and you can use Mint and you can use, you need a budget. There's lots of different programs that you can use that will help you to get a handle on your spending. But a lot of times I recommend folks get out a, a piece of paper and a pen or pencil and write stuff down because uh, it's like the old trick when you write down notes in a class, you actually mm. remember what the teacher was saying versus hitting record on a, in my day, cassette uh, machine, but now maybe your iPhone <laughs> where you would record the, the professor's lecture. The notes are what help you remember and the notes on your budget is going to be what helps you get a handle on it. And money too, it's not just a thing, it's emotional. It, people get emotional about money. I remember- my, it's so huge. It, money is such an emotional thing uh, where maybe this has to be 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, my wife and I wanted to get our financial game in order. And we spoke to someone. And the first thing they said is exactly what you said. Let's do a budget, right? So I make this, she makes, this is our mortgage. This was our car payment, lights, water, heat, gas, all that stuff, all the way down to like how much you spend for takeout. We just had all our expenses. We knew that usually reoccur in a month. And we looked at the last three months, we averaged them, we put them through. And I told someone, I told a few people we did this and like, oh, my wife would never do that. I'm like, do what? The budget? Oh my gosh, she would go crazy if we did a budget. Oh my gosh, I'd get divorced. I'm like, no, no, we're doing this so we don't get divorced. Yeah. 
we're doing this. And like, so we could just say, we're like, where did it go? Or just like, all right, we're just, what's going on? Can we have a picture of, I had no idea this is what we made. I had no idea our mortgage was this percent of our income. It just gives you, it makes it like objective, not subjective. Like our last three months, this is our heating bill. And there's no, it's not a lie. It's just, we paid this three months in a row divided by three. And this is what we're saying our heating bill is. And anyway, you look, but the people looked at me like we were crazy that we're like, we're spending time to do a budget. Like, anyway, can you yeah. speak to how, emo- why money is so emotional? I'll steal the phrase because it's so apt, but there is a psychology of money that's pretty um, complex. And, and there's a really great book by Morgan Housel, I, I always recommend called Shocker, The Psychology of Money. And in it, he addresses some of these topics. People have these money stories and it's really hard to get away from. You grew up with them. Something happened that was maybe a shock to your system and you can't get away from it. It's money is such, we're so attuned to it. Heck, there's a reason why in all sorts of religious texts, money plays a part, an evil part, because somehow it just gets into our systems. And that's the other thing that I try to do when I speak to folks, which is try to just talk to them about it and to demystify not only the investments and, and options and other financial planning tools that, that are often filled with jargon that Wall Street has basically created complexity in order to sell things at a higher profit. And that scares people. And what salesmen love more than anything else is fear, because mm. they'll teach you in sales, they'll say, find the point of pain or fear, and that's how you make the sale. So my job is to help people see money as just a tool. It's just a thing. It's nothing different than a hammer. You need the hammer if you're going to want to build something with some nails. So you need money to to, to live. The, we've To the extent that we can get away from seeing it as some sort of all-powerful thing that somehow has a control over us, that's super valuable to me, in my opinion. And if I can get people to, again, just to see money as a tool, not to blame themselves for money, mis- quote unquote, money mistakes that they may have made in the past, it doesn't matter. We're all just moving forward. I can't go back myself. I'll tell folks that, you know, if you, who, who people will tell me, oh, if I'd only bought this stock or whatever mm-hmm. stock and talk about Amazon or whatever, you name it. And I'll use the example as like, I think it was 1970 or something. If you had bought a share of Walmart, you'd be a millionaire mm-hmm. by now. Who was also around and pretty successful at the same time was Sears. And guess what? If you bought Sears instead of Walmart, <laughs> you wouldn't be very happy at all. Who's to say that? Why would you have chosen? Why would you think that you were the smart guy that would have chosen Walmart instead of Sears? Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? There's just no way to know. And so you, you can't blame yourself. You got to be kind to yourself. And you did yeah. the best move at the time that you thought with the information that you had. And uh, yes. no, it, definitely. And then just to recap, just summarize a few of the things here. We'll wrap up with a couple of fun questions. But to recap, so if, if someone had to ask a question to a potential advisor, you said, how do you get paid? And the second one was, how much will I pay total in fees and institutional uh, costs? Uh, and inve- total in fees and investment <coughs> costs. Yeah. Then how much will I pay in total fees and investment costs? Two good mm-hmm. questions there. 
Also, too, you mentioned that uh, a great place to start is a budget. Just that what you make, what your spouse makes, if she works out, he or she works outside the home, you have your fixed payments, your car payments, student loans, anything like that, uh, your utilities, lights, water, heat, food. And then if you have something extra, then you start talking about, okay, every quarter, every month, maybe we're investing in either building up a cash fund or we're building up a retirement fund, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely great. And everybody just needs to figure out what's going to work best for them. Mm -hmm. And then stay away. If someone's not a fiduciary, stay away. Maybe someone right out of college doesn't need to fund a whole life cash insurance policy or something like that. I fell to that. Like when I got out of college, a friend of a friend was a financial advisor and they were like, hey, let me manage your money. I'm like, cool, you look successful. And the first thing he sold me was a whole cash, what is it called? Whole, whole life. life, yeah. Whole life plan. I'm like 22 years old, like putting hundreds of dollars a month in a whole life policy, no cash savings, not, no mention of retirement. It was just that. And I, it might've been my dad or something. He's like, hey, you can do whatever you want. You're an adult, but this is absolutely not the way forward. This, this is a bad move. Anyway, I, I jumped out of that quick. And, but that was, but there's so many people out there just trying to get there with their, what they're getting paid on, like how they get funded. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. How about if a couple fun questions here, wrapping up to be respectful of your time, what advice would you have? Maybe someone, maybe just out of college or just wants to get their act financial act in order, or maybe a couple comes to you and says, hey, it might be time for us to get our game in order. What advice would you have for them? What's the first step? So the first step is to have uh, a target. And it's my target is always is a little more nebulous, again, than that 15%. I'd say I want you to think about how much you could possibly save and then just shoot for it. Because if you have the ability to save, you've got to do it when you have that ability. Because of there's going to be, like I said before, there's going to be times in your life where you don't have it and you don't want, you want to feel comfortable not saving during those periods where you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. If you have the opportunity, take that. If, you, if you're actually at a stage of your life where there's actually a few extra bucks at the end of each month or each week, take advantage of that and allocate that to whatever you're trying to do, cash yep. or retirement or something because like that. Of, because here's the thing. When you're single, that's when you can save the most. And ironically, that's when people don't save. They're yeah. single and they just spend it all. Yeah. But that's when you can save the most because when you get married... If you get if you choose to get married, and then if you choose to have children, each of those things makes it incredibly more difficult to save. Probably the children more more than just being married, because some obviously some couples can save vast vastly more because they have two they might have two incomes. But still, the point is that as life moves forward, there's more and more things that tug on that budget and on your and on your available cash. The sooner you can save. The more you can save, the better. Because you might think it's not that much when you're in your 20s, putting away $100 a, a, a month or $100 a week if you're lucky. But if you, it, the numbers seem small. But then all of a sudden you realize that what you were, what you put away in your 20s, when you're 40, that it's been growing for 20 years. Dividends reinvest and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's huge. It's huge. It, you can't believe what's in there 20 years later if you mm-hmm. let the dividends go and you didn't touch it, you just keep let it roll. How about for all the things you have going on right now, verbatim financial, what's the most exciting project you're working on now? So the most exciting project that I'm working on in business, it's 
it sounds foolish, but it's just basically honing my ability to help more folks. It sounds salesy. And again, that's the reason why I didn't get into the side of the business because as an advisor, just like the insurance salesman that we were talking about a second ago, you do have to go out and sell your services to somebody. But the better you can do at it and the more honesty that you can provide for folks and the more tools that you can give them to do as much as they can on their own, that's really, to me, that's the best way forward. So I'm trying to, to develop new ways to help more people because if you know what, the truth of it is that I'm a one-man shop now and I have a limited amount of clients that I can take on. I do have openings now, but the point is that I want to help far more people than I can ever have as clients. And so that's what I'm working on now. And that's basically my 2022 goal. Last two questions, two fun ones to wrap up. If you could spend a day with any business leader, tycoon, titan of industry, alive or dead, who would it be? That's a great question. I think it's pretty difficult for me on the investment side, I really want to say Jack Bogle because of he's just to have been at that forefront of, of seeing through the haze of Wall Street and saying, I'm going to do something that's going to that's going to be different, that's going to save people billions, if not trillions of dollars over the course of time. It's just that guy is fascinating. He had a lot of chutzpah to do what he did. How is um, he a billionaire? He was like, he didn't patent something <clears throat> or he didn't patent the mutual fund or whatever it was. He didn't put the, the, the copyrights on it. And he was wealthy, but he was, he should have been Warren Buffett. He could, no, he could have made a lot more money for sure. And that's the beauty of, of Vanguard and the way that, that it was run under him. And in the years immediately after he, he left the company that the goal was not to make, as I was saying about my previous wall street motivations, the goal, his goal was not to just make as much money as possible. It was to do things the right way. And that's so laudable. Jack Bogle would be a great call. Last question. Sometimes this question works. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's a fun one. John, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? So I think I would, it's connected to what, what I said, but I have this quote on the verbatim website. And my grandfather used to say it, is that if you're going to do something, do it right or don't do it at all. Do it right or don't do it at all. I think that is about as good as a spot to end as any. John Stoy, first off, I'd like to thank you for joining us and sharing your financial wisdom and uh, your story. Really appreciate it. I think you helped a lot of people today. If people were looking for you and Verbatim Financial online, where can they find you? So the easiest way is verbatimfinancial.com. That's where they can get to the business. I'm all over um, social media. All of my handles are the same. It is uh, Stoyboy. My name pronounced Stoy, spelled S-T-O-J. And so Stoyboy, at Stoyboy, S-T-O-J-B-O-J. And that's on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You name it. In. What I'll do is I'll put your website in the show notes and all your social media handles on the show notes. If people have any financial questions or want to reach out to you and uh, want to touch base with you regarding helping with their finances, will, everything will be in the show notes. But uh, John, I appreciate you joining us, man. Great to speak with you. 
You too. No, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Uh, good luck down there in Atlanta. And hopefully uh, one day our paths will cross again. Thanks, Joe.